Good morning. It's good to be with you again. I'm Pastor Scott. For those of you who don't know me, and for those of you that do know me, I'm Pastor Scott. (laughs) I grew up in a family of many, many generations of Sheffields and Martins and Barnetts and Elliots that all were convinced that Jesus Christ was the Son of God that He was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one came to the Father except through Him. They also believed that if they confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, that they would be saved. They believed these things, and they based their life on these beliefs, so much so that they told their children and their grandchildren as well about these truths. So it's not hard to imagine that from the time that I was an infant, that I was taken to church and soon after that to Sunday school as well. And even before I was old enough to make a a profession of faith about Jesus Christ myself, I had been taught and I knew that God loved me and that he had a wonderful life planned out for me. I remember it was about the time when I was seven years old, and I don't know all the details, just some of the the, uh, generalities that I remember, that I was in my parents' room and sitting on their bed, and I was talking to my mom and asking her some questions about heaven and hell. And as you can imagine, uh, even a seven-year-old can decide that there's one of those places that they would like to go to and one of those places that they wouldn't like to go to. And so it was soon after that that I did make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, and I was excited that I would be spending eternity someday in heaven. But there were also some things about that concept that I just wasn't quite comfortable with. And I think uh, it it had nothing to do with the fact uh, that I wanted to be in heaven. That was a no-brainer. But the idea of eternity was what scared me a bit. It didn't sound, heaven didn't sound like a bad place. I just wasn't sure about this forever and ever part. And so that's where my misgivings began was with this word eternity. I mean, some things last a a really long time, right? I mean, like when you're sent to your room, today we know that as time out, right? Uh, But even though that may seem like a really long time, it does come to an end. At some point in my life, I don't remember when exactly, I, I heard about this thing called the millennium. And that had more of an appeal to me for some reason. Now, the millennium is when Jesus comes back and, and sets up his kingdom on earth and there's no more sin or sorrow. But as the name would kind of tell you, millennium, it lasts for a thousand years. And I like the idea of that because even if I, I found myself, uh, not liking or getting tired of heaven around year 663, there were only 337 more years to go, right? And, you know, you can put up with anything for 337 years. (laughs) So this idea of the millennium 
appealed to me a little bit more. But as I thought, struggled through these thoughts of, of eternity, I, I went back to my mom and I asked her again, you know, to help me with these, these thoughts that I was having. And, and she really had some wise words to share with me that God would never create something that was intended to be an eternal reward for those who loved him and followed him that all of us who choose to follow Christ would not enjoy for all of eternity. Worked for me. At least I didn't have to, to worry anymore about eternity and, and uh, uh, lose sleep over it. But then, when I got a little bit older, I started reading a couple of books that are still some of my favorites today. Uh, the first was The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and the second was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Uh, and in case you're wondering, my sermon is not going to be from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, but I did want to share a passage with you. This is from early on in the novel, and it's when uh, Huck has been, uh, I guess you'd say, drafted into living with two old women. Uh, they're going to make sure that he gets raised properly. And so one of them was a Christian spinster named Miss Watson. And she takes a very dim view of Huck's fun-loving spirit. And let me just read to you this one paragraph. He says, now she had got a start. And once she did that, she went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was to go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it, but I never said so. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. Uh, the pious Miss Watson had nothing to say about heaven that would excite Huck about being there someday. And to be quite honest, nothing that she said about it would really excite you or I, would it? I mean, if she had talked about it in a way that God has described it to us, she would have described it as a place where uh, there was a meaningful existence and pleasurable things to do with enjoyable people. And in fact, that's a far more accurate description of what heaven will really be like. If Miss Watson had told Huck that the Bible says that we'll be living in a resurrected body and uh, we'll be with people that we love on a resurrected planet with rivers and mountains and adventures and uh, probably dirt clods to throw too, right? That probably would have appealed to him. Well, when it came to heaven and hell, Mark Twain never quite got it right. In his later years, in an autobiography, he wrote these words. The burden of pain, care, and misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, pride is dead, vanity is dead, longing for release is in their place. Sounds like a fun guy, doesn't it? It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them, and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, and where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness. And that was his view of the afterlife. Listen to a contrasting view from Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor and a contemporary of Mark Twain. And he had these words to say, 
To come to God is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. Did you know that the majority, the overwhelming majority of Americans today continue to believe that there is life after death and that heaven and hell exist? That's according to a a George Barna poll. But what people actually believe about heaven and hell varies quite widely. And why is that? Well, they found in this research that Americans are cutting and pasting their ideas and their theology of heaven from many different things, including movies and television. And what they believe is actually very far from what God teaches us about heaven in the Bible. So here's my premise, that if we have a false understanding of heaven like Miss Watson and Huck, we will not really be looking forward to being there, especially not for an eternity. And if we're not looking forward to being there, why in the world would we tell somebody else how to get there? Imagine that you're uh, part of NASA and you've been given uh, an assignment that it's going to be a five-year mission to Mars. And so on the day that you're about to be launched... One of the other astronauts turns to you and says, well, what do you think Mars is going to be like? And can you imagine just kind of shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, I I don't really know. I never really took the time to, to do any research or learn about it. I guess we'll figure out once we get there. It's inconceivable, isn't it? Why would you be focusing all of your attention on getting to a certain place but not spend any time figuring out what it's like. But how many of us have gone to church or to Mass for years and couldn't put together more than a couple of sentences of a vague description of what heaven is really like? Where do we get these misconceptions? I believe there's one central explanation for why so many of Christ's followers have such a vague uninspired, or even a negative view of heaven. I believe the reason for that is the work of Satan. At the end of John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus said these words of Satan, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And some of Satan's favorite lies are about heaven. In Revelation 13, 6, it says, And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So we see Satan is slandering three things, God's person, God's people, and God's place, heaven. If we go back and do a study from the book of Isaiah, particularly around chapter 14, what we learn about Satan is that he was a created being. He had a beginning. God does not. But that he was created as one of the most beautiful and powerful angels that ever existed. But pride became his problem, and he wanted to be worshipped as God. He didn't want to worship God. And so he was forcibly evicted from heaven. 
And Satan became bitter not only towards God, but towards God's people and towards God's place, the place that he was no longer allowed to dwell. I think it must be absolutely maddening to him to know that people that love and follow Christ will one one day be in the place that he is no longer allowed to be, the place that he was kicked out of. So what better way for Satan and his demons to attack Christ's followers than to whisper lies about the very place that God has prepared as our eternal reward? Colossians 3.2 tells us to set our affections on things above, not on earthly things. And that's why I was entitling this message, Are You Looking Forward to Heaven? Is your mind set on things above? Or is all of your focus or the majority of your focus simply here on earth, on your earthly home? When the explorer Marco Polo returned to Italy from the court of Kublai Khan in China after his adventures there, he was trying to describe a world that was far different than the world in Italy. So what he did was he chose some reference points, things that were similar in the two places, so that he could describe to them and have them use their eyes of imagination to understand what China was like. Now, that's not to say that China was an imaginary place. It's that he asked them to use their imagination to know what they did know here to help them to understand what they didn't know there. (coughs) The reference points of Italy actually became a basis for understanding China, and then the differences could be spelled out from there. And the human authors of the Bible did the same thing when they were talking about heaven and describing it. They, they talk about the Bible having a garden and having a heavenly kingdom and there being a city there. Because, see, gardens and cities and kingdoms are all things that we have reference points for. Now, true, these are analogies, but they have to be accurate analogies for us to be able to understand something about heaven. Otherwise, they would be very poor analogies. Too often we think that heaven is a non-physical realm which could not possibly have real gardens or kingdoms or cities or buildings or banquets or even bodies. So there is an importance of using our imaginations. We can't anticipate what we cannot imagine. And God is asking us to anticipate with eagerness what he has set before us. And that's why I believe God gives us glimpses of heaven in the Bible, to fire up our imagination and to kindle our desire for being there. And that's exactly why Satan will try to misdirect our thoughts about heaven, either to something that is undesirable, like what I described when I was thinking about eternity, or maybe even something unimaginable, something that we think that we could never understand. He puts that lie in our minds, well, you can't understand what heaven's all about, so don't even think about it. And maybe you've kind of bought into that lie without realizing it, and maybe putting a Bible verse to it. Uh, This is the main text that I'm going to use. If you've got your Bible with you this morning, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians... 
chapter 2, verse 9, uh, this is a verse that is often used uh, by people to tell you that it's impossible to understand what heaven is like. And I'm not saying that these are bad people. These are probably sometimes some very godly uh, Bible-believing people. And they'll take this one verse, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. Let me read this to you. It says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And then they'll take that and say, see, nobody has ever seen it. Nobody's ever really heard anything directly about it. It's even beyond your imagination to uh, begin to picture what heaven is all about. The problem is, that's the end of that verse, but it is not the end of the sentence. So let's read 9 and 10 together. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So let me ask you a question. How does God reveal things to us that he wants us to know? Right here, right? Through His Word. God uses His Holy Spirit who directed the writing of human men uh, to write down these words for us and then kept them for us. So if God has written these things down, He wants us to know. So let me read this again to you. And putting those two verses together, maybe no eye has ever seen it. Maybe nobody has ever heard what's going on there. Maybe it's really difficult to imagine what it's like. So because of that, I directed the Holy Spirit to put into words descriptions for you so that you would understand what the what heaven is all about. Did you know that there are actually over 500 verses in the Bible that talk about heaven? That means that God wants us to know what it's like, doesn't it? Now, that doesn't mean that we understand everything about heaven, but what he has revealed to us is without error and is accurate. So I want to take some time to talk about maybe what are some of the wrong ideas that we have or we've heard about heaven. And the first one we're going to look at is that heaven is not a literal place, but it's just an idea. I want to refute that because I do believe that heaven is a literal place prepared by Christ for a prepared people. If you uh, read in John 14, verses 2 and 3, this is from the New King James Version. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now that tells us a whole lot about heaven right there. If you look at the beginning, he describes it as a house where there are a lot of places to live. This version says mansions. Other versions say dwelling places or or uh, homes or houses. So there is a physical place that God has for us in heaven. And he says, if it, if that weren't the case, I wouldn't be telling you this. God would not misdirect us with false notions about heaven. And then he says he goes to prepare a place for us. Do you go to prepare imaginary places? Of course not. 
You only go to prepare real places. And then he says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Why would Jesus need to come back for us to join him in an imaginary place? He's coming to bring us to a real place that really exists. I want you to look at at one particular word. The word is place. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar. I've never formally studied New Testament Greek. But I can look at references and find out what some of these words mean. And the word that was translated from Greek into the English word place is actually a, um, a very specific definition, and that definition is a locatable place. In other words, you can put, uh, if you had a map, a pin on the map of where heaven is going to be. So from this promise from Jesus, we have full confidence that heaven is a real physical place, a place where Christ's followers will one day live with their Savior. Now the next uh, misconception I want to address is that there's no work in heaven because work is part of the curse after Adam and Eve sinned. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that, and the first thing that we need to address is the misconception that work is part of the curse. Uh, In Genesis chapter 2, in verse... Eight, we see that God made a garden. What's the name of that garden? Eden, right? The Garden of Eden. And in verse 15, we're told that God created Adam and made him to be the gardener of Eden. A gardener is a person who works in a garden, right? So Adam was working in the Garden of Eden, and this is before sin. Sin is not introduced into this until chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 17, is when we're seeing the curse that is given to Satan and to Eve and to Adam for each of their parts in sin entering his creation. Let me read to you from uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. This is the curse that's given to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, that's not the curse, okay? (laughs) Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So where is the curse? It's in the ground, right? It's not the work. But what we're told is that once that curse has been given, it says... In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the curse that's given to Adam is not that he has to start working. It's that his work is going to become tremendously difficult. Before, when he was working in the Garden of Eden, his work was pure joy. But now his work is filled with thorns and thistles, and the ground is hard, and he's going to be working by the sweat of his brow to provide for his family. So now that we've uh, talked through that misconception that uh, work is a curse, let's look at the rest of this. Is there going to be work in heaven? For whatever reason. Uh, 
Now, I don't think God will say one day to us, well done, good and faithful servant, you can have the rest of eternity off. That comes from the parable that Jesus is telling of the workers who he had given a job to do. And, the, you know, a parable is not a true story. It's a, a fictional story that's told to make a point, uh, kind of like a fable, like Aesop's fable. So in Matthew twenty-five twenty-one, Jesus, or the master, is telling this servant who had done a good job, he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So it actually sounds like he's going to have more work in heaven than he had on earth, but that it's going to be filled with joy. So yes, there is going to be work in heaven. Also in Revelation 22.3, it says that his servants shall serve him. So yes, we will have work to do, but it will be work that is uh, wonderful, will make us happy, we'll be excited about it, we'll be serving our Lord in paradise, and we'll be serving with the fullness of our talents and our gifts without any of the stress or the difficulties that we have in our work here on earth. Another misconception, heaven is going to be boring. Well, let me just answer that one really quickly. Heaven will not be boring because God is not boring. God is the most exciting, creative, adventuresome person that you can ever imagine, multiplied a thousand times over. We cannot even begin to conceive what excitement there is in the Trinity of the triune God, of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. There is just so much excitement going on in that relationship that there's no way that heaven could be boring. Here's another misconception. Heaven will be like an eternal church service. That doesn't mean like a church service that never ends. But, okay, is there some truth to that? Yes. Because like what we did this morning, we were worshiping and we were praising God. That's going to continue on even to a greater degree. We're told that all eternity we're going to be worshiping and praising God. But what about things like prayer? We're not told anywhere in heaven, uh, in the Bible that in heaven we will be praying. And why is that? Because we will already be in complete fellowship with God. There will be no need for prayer. We're also uh, not told about there being any preaching in heaven. What is it that happens when Pastor Mark preaches to us? He is explaining to us what the Bible tells us about God and our relationship with Him. There won't be any need for that because we will have a complete understanding about God. We're also told very specifically that there will not be any church buildings. Revelation 21:22 says, "And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb." So, no prayer, no preaching, no church buildings, but yes, there will be praise and worship for all eternity. Now, as I was studying for this and, and thinking of some questions that I had about heaven, they may not be the same questions you have, but let me just share with you some questions that I came up with. The first one I thought of was, how will everyone fit there who has ever believed in Jesus as the Messiah? 
I mean, that's got to be a lot of people when you look at the time between creation through now. Um, how many people have believed? Well, let's look to the Bible to see what a description of heaven will be like. And this is specific about heaven's capital, which is called the New Jerusalem. It's described in Revelation 21.16. It says, The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod. 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. Now, if I do my math correctly, that means that it's more than 2 million square miles. And that's just on the first floor, so to speak. Uh, because when we look at, say, the city of Erie and we measure the length and the width, we don't also go up, Right. But we're told that the New Jerusalem is a cube. It's as big this way as it is this way as it is this way. So that means it was also 1,500 miles straight up. So I'm thinking, okay, how does that compare? How, how can I wrap my, my arms around that? Because I can't comprehend 1,500 miles up and wide and in length. So New York City, I chose that not because it, it's the greatest populated city in the world, but according to the research I did, it's the largest city in the world by square miles. And so that city, New York City, is 45,000 square miles. That's quite a bit smaller than the New Jerusalem, right? If I do my calculations correct, New Jerusalem is 500 times bigger than New York City by square miles. Now, if I take the population of New York City, just kind of doing some extrapolation, uh, there's approximately 8.5 million people in the city of New York. If I multiply the size of the New Jerusalem, by that population of New York City, that means that this New Jerusalem could probably hold about 4.3 billion people. And again, that's just the ground level. The current population of the earth, anybody have any idea how many people are currently living on earth? Just approximate. It's about 7 billion now. It's, it continues to go up. Seven billion people uh, approximately live on planet Earth today. Social scientists estimate that from the beginning of creation, obviously starting with Adam and Eve until today, there have been about 108 billion people that have lived on the planet Earth since creation. Now, if we're taking more than just that ground level and saying multiply that, maybe let's say that's five miles per story in in uh, New Jerusalem. It's just absolutely immense how many people could fit in the New Jerusalem. It, it's tens and hundreds of times as many people could fit there as the entire population of the earth from creation until now. So, yeah, heaven's going to be big enough. Okay, how about this? We've all heard old gospel songs and uh, maybe some hymns that talk about pearly gates and streets of gold. Is that really true, or is that just somebody uh, writing a song with imagination? Yes, it is true. Let me just read a few verses to you from Revelation 21 that describe it. 
The new Jerusalem had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones, jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, and amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. Can you even imagine how big that pearl must be? And the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. Wow. The most beautiful place you have ever seen on earth cannot even hold a candle to what the new Jerusalem is going to look like. That place that Jesus has been preparing for 2,000 years for us who believe in him. There are probably some of you who are also wondering um, about books and movies that have recently been published and produced that talk about people who uh, claim to have gone to heaven and come back to tell us about it. Well, let me give you a couple of cautions about that. First of all, always compare what the author says and claims with Scripture. Most importantly, never allow anyone else's experiences and interpretation of that experience to shape your understanding of Scripture. In other words, what we need to do is the other way around. When somebody or something that we read or see tells us that somebody has seen heaven and come back to tell us about it, go to the Bible Look at some of those 500 verses and compare that with what they're saying, because we know this is true. And if they're saying something that's different than that, then we need to have a great deal of caution. Now, of course, God could give a person a vision of heaven. Ultimately, only God knows if those claims are true or if they're the result of misrepresentation or maybe exaggeration or worst of all, deception. Uh, and just as an aside, the co-author of the book, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, admitted that the story was false. If God were truly to give a person a vision of heaven or hell, one thing that we certainly know would be true is that it would match up completely with what we read in the Bible. So the question is, so What? What difference does this make? Well, have you ever been on a trip that became miserable, where everyone got sick or maybe everything started going wrong? I have. This was on my last missions trip to Paraguay. Uh, it was on the last night that we were there. We were at the pastor's house having dinner, and I heard that somebody uh, was getting sick. Um, actually, I heard somebody getting sick. <laughs> And I didn't know if this was like a a 24-hour bug or if it was something they ate, but I figured time would tell. And time did tell because the rest of us started getting sick too. And fortunately or unfortunately, I held out the longest. Uh, That actually turned out to be unfortunate because that meant that I was sick on the plane ride. You know that little white bag in the pocket, seat pocket in front of you? I got intimately acquainted with that little white bag. All I could think about that whole time was, I can't wait to get home. 
I want to be in my own bed. I want to be with people who love me. And I want, I'm assuming by that time I would be well and I could tell them about my trip and, and things would be just be so much better if I was home. I think that's the way that we need to view heaven as home. Why do we feel that way? Because home is about comfort. It's about putting on comfortable clothes and and laying back on your couch and being with people you love. It's where we want to be. Now, I enjoy traveling. I always have. But the best part of traveling is coming home. I know that not everybody has had such great experiences with home, but whatever good there has been, heaven is going to be an infinity times better. And any of the bad that you've experienced will not be a part of heaven. Maybe you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you know that heaven is your home, but maybe you're not really looking forward to it as much as you realize you should. Maybe you used to be passionate about it and you're not so much anymore. You kind of got caught up in your life here. I encourage you, find a concordance. You easily find one online and start looking up verses that talk about heaven. Start learning about it. Be that, that astronaut who learns about the place where they're going. Learn about the Bible. Ask God to help you understand as much as possible, realizing that some of it is just far too much for you to understand now. But maybe you've been listening to me talk this morning about heaven, and instead of being assured that that's where you're going to be, you're wondering if that's where you're going to be. And I think for me to spend this much time describing heaven and not tell you how you could get there would be wrong. And maybe you're thinking, well, doesn't everybody go to heaven? Well, at least good people. Don't all good people go to heaven? There's a false assumption right there that that we're good, that we're good enough to get into heaven and be with God who's perfect. That fundamental flaw is pointed out very clearly in Scripture where we're told that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. So what we're told is that everyone who has ever lived has sinned and that what comes with that is a punishment and that punishment is eternal separation from God. That's the bad news. What's the good news? If that's true, and I've earned death for myself, is there any hope for me? What can I do? The Bible tells us in that same book in Romans that God demonstrates His own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, in other words, enemies of God, Christ died for us. Okay, well, that sounds pretty good. That means that, that Jesus has done everything for me. I don't have to do anything, right? He took care of all the penalty, and that's great. But what the Bible says is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, and that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, the way I think about it is 
like a birthday gift. Let's uh, assume that you're bringing me a gift on my birthday. As a matter of fact, let's make that a promise, okay? You're going to bring me a gift on my birthday. It's April 26th. You might want to write that down. And you bring this gift all wrapped up for me, and you set it on my coffee table in my living room. And I thank you for it profusely, and I talk about how wonderfully it's wrapped, how great this is that you brought me a gift, and I never open it. Has that gift ever really become mine? It doesn't until I receive it. And so that's the way salvation is too. This is a gift from God. But until we receive it, it has not become ours. And that's what I was explaining uh, through that verse, that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus uh, Christ was raised from the dead, we will be saved. Maybe this has just brought up a lot of questions for you. Maybe you're wondering, how can I learn more about heaven, or how can I be assured that someday I'll be in heaven? Well, I would love to talk to you afterwards, so please uh, come and talk to me. There will be other uh, elders from the church that will be up here who can answer your questions as well. Uh, but please don't leave without having these things settled in your heart.